another full 15 minutes of all the late news at 11 o'clock. And remember, starting at 10.30, WR Radio will bring you inning-by-inning scores of the two big National League Western Division baseball games. And now, Gene Shepard. Tonight's program will be official. This will appear on the examinations later on in the semester. I'm, uh, hey, by the way, I've already been thinking, well, I've been thinking from off and on, you know, by great names for rock groups. Has anybody got any ideas for great rock group names out there? How about Stud Clanker and the Male Chauvinists? Huh? You don't like that? I'm sorry. How about Biggie Dole and the Relief Clients? Huh? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, this uh, it's all part of our time. You can't you can't help it. I'm uh, I'm standing down at 23rd Street, which is one of my favorite uh, subway stations there. You know, watching the passing parade. And, you know, sometimes I spend upwards of four or five hours watching the passing parade down there. Everything passes except trains. And I'm standing down there, you know, and the passing parade is milling around. The guys are getting bugged, and occasionally a shot rings out down there. And once in a while, a little old lady, you know, gets chased up the steps by a guy wearing a pink shirt and carrying a bull whip. And, you know, mother, well, that's mother, you know, she's always in trouble. And, and I'm, I'm standing there just looking at the scene, and I, I see this stuff written all over the walls. And I'm repeating to you what I see, you know, it's because graffiti is a legitimate uh, form of expression, I suspect, of our time. And this one said, uh, I, 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 you know, it's so terrible. People are getting truly obscene. I mean, I mean, in the real sense, I don't find sex obscene. Anything you say, you know, that doesn't bother me. It's the, the true obscenity. I just, you know, terrible stuff like the one I saw today, 23rd Street, said, uh, John Lindsay is Dorian Gray. And, uh, you know, I just thought that was terrible. I didn't invent it. I just, there it is. It's on the side of the Coke machine. You find it down there. And there was another one that said, uh, stamp out work. Now, that's one of the few pieces of graffiti that I have absolutely, totally agreed with in a long time. And I'm standing here admiring it. It was written with such, you know, such obvious passion. Guy really, you know, laid it on. You could see broke the chalk in the middle of the W, you know. And uh, he was just in passion. Well, now, I, I'm going to bring out the... A, a very interesting moral problem, because uh, I, I was suddenly face to face with it. There, I, I was, you know, I was admiring stamp out work. Have you noticed how many bits of obscenity there are around about Doctor Spock? <laughs> Have you noticed that? So, <laughs> probably by the very guys that were cradled in the arms of his work. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I'm watching this thing go on. I'm enjoying the scene, and, and uh, suddenly I see a guy down at the other end of the platform. He's standing there, and he's He's got a briefcase. He's got kind of a 
black-looking uh, suit, you know, typical Brooks Brothers-type suit. You don't see those suits much anymore. And, uh, no, I mean the real Brooks Brothers type. You know, it looks like it's made out of gray sandpaper, you know, the kind. And, uh, yeah, and he's probably got Oxford gray jockey shorts on. He's got that look, see. And he opens up his briefcase. Now, I'll tell you exactly what I saw. I'm just going to relay it for its, uh, you know, the moral conundrums of our time, the major questions which man has to answer deep inside himself are often quite complicated and and uh, Solomon never ran into this type. And here's this guy standing down there amid all his graffiti. And he opens up his, he had his very thin briefcase. It looked like it was made out of black uh, zebra skin or something. Beautiful looking briefcase. He opens it up. And I'm expecting him to take out maybe a $27 calabash pipe or something. And instead he takes out a magic marker. Up. Uh, I'm raising my hand. What happened, Nick? Don't look at me like this. I'm standing there watching him, and all of a sudden I says, I'm going to catch a guy in the act. I've always wanted to see somebody write graffiti. I've never seen anybody do it. And so I suspect there isn't anybody that really does it. I think those bricks are delivered that way, all printed up from the factory. You know, I, I uh, just, I've never seen anybody actually do it. So somebody, they say, in New Brunswick has uh, written on the side of a thing out there in great big bold letters, Flick lives. Oh, yes, that's a... Uh, Famous piece. Who's Flick, anyway? What are they talking about? I don't know. Probably a misprint. But uh, nevertheless, uh, they. Uh, I see this guy whip out this magic marker, which incidentally was dark blue, and he starts walking around the subway right in front of everybody, crossing out the graffiti. He just crosses it out. Well, now, th here's the moral problem. Is a man crossing out graffiti on the uh, sides of... Uh, peanut machines in the subway. Is he involving himself in arbitrary censorship, or is he himself expressing his opinion by crossing out the graffiti, and therefore is entitled to free expression? Now, that's a, you know, I sat there for a minute, you know, my head started to buzz, and it was only about, uh, you know, the train came along, and only, I'd been only down there maybe six, seven hours, so uh, I was uh, kind of surprised. The train arrived, one city, chock-a-block full of people, and, and uh, I could just see, you know, feet sticking out of the top of the car and all that stuff. And, the, and the, I, I noticed one interesting thing about it. It didn't seem to be driven by anybody. Uh, the train just roared up. Well, I wasn't going to question it, you know. I, after having... Uh, any of you know anything about the myth of the, uh, of the uh, Flying Dutchman? Well, you know that here in New York, for those of you who don't live in New York, there's also a myth of the Flying A-Train. The Stewardesses, America's most controversial new film. The Stewardesses in new StereoVision 3D and Eastman Keller. StereoVision 3D is the most realistic film process ever developed. Don't miss The Stewardesses, the film all America is talking about. This picture has been rated X. Very, very X. Oh, the Stewardess. Stewardesses. And more than one, actually. Now at a flagship theater near you, you can't miss this beauty. Check your local newspaper for a theater near your home. All right, sneak it in there, please. Please, Nick, just sneak it in. Yes, yeah, sneak it in, that's it. Hey, you're very subtle tonight, Nick. Oh, that was nice. Yes, sir, I recognize that one. Hey. Hey, yeah, I know. Oh, yeah, it's... Obscenity will certainly not, uh, sticks and stones will, uh, it's on the tip of my tongue, but, uh, 
sticks and stones, but the... Oh, that doesn't matter. Humphrey Dumpty sat on a wall. So anyway, I'm sitting there. Just leave it run. There's got to be something on it eventually. So uh, I'm sitting there one night. This was maybe two or three years ago. And tonight, this radio station, which is a deeply concerned station, so better you can understand your world, make sense out of what appears to be a totally chaotic whirlpool of activity without direction. We are tonight bringing you, as part of our vast series of uh, mosaic-like insights into the life and times of the urban citizen, the story of the flying A-train. You don't know the story? Well, this was about three years ago I ran into this, and I learned about it. And ever since that time, I've been scared. Well, I was scared before that, but for different reasons. This just added a little uh, insult to injury, you know. It's four o'clock in the morning, quarter to four or something like that. And I'm in this subway station way uptown on 110th Street, over up there near the Bronx. Now, I don't get there very often. And, you know, you find yourself at four o'clock in the morning in one of these little out-of-the-way subway stations. You begin to get a little jumpy. You can hear echoes of far-distant activity. Somebody way up the track is pounding on something. You know, they're always working at four o'clock in the morning. And ain't nobody down there but me. And two or three poor, sad, arthritic mice were trying to work their way down into the Times Square area to make it big time in the rat world. I'm walking around. You're ducking in and out from behind those iron posts. You, you learn these little tricks when you've lived in New York long enough. You know, you never give anybody a standing target. And, uh, yeah, just the way the old, you know, the old uh, bad men of the West knew. Never give anybody a clear look at your back. You keep moving sideways. So an old guy comes down the steps and sits down on the bench. And he's got a lunch bucket. He's wearing overalls. Nothing. I keep looking down the tracks. I've been down in this subway now for about maybe 45 minutes. I haven't seen anything. Little did I know that that night I was going to learn the great myth of the flying A-train. You mean you've never heard it? I can't believe it. Living here in, in this city, you don't know the myths of your city? The legends upon which our lives are built? That's like me going up into New Bedford, Massachusetts and saying to somebody, I can look out over that dark and lowering wine sea and I can see, I can sense the plunging wake of the Pequod and Captain Ahab standing on the poop deck stumping back and forth his great, his great bulk against the night sky the thunder of his peg leg as he raises his hand and shakes his fist at the heavens swearing vengeance to God himself well, the average guy of New Bedford say, yeah, I read you We don't take anything unless it's in writing. And so I'm sitting there, you know, nervously up at 110th Street. When I hear the sound coming down from somewhere uptown, I hear the sound of a train approaching. 
just hear it. You know, you, when you when you're waiting in a subway late at night, you can you can feel the rumble. You can. It's not really clearly heard. It's felt. It's a it's a feeling. You can feel the ground going a little bit. You know, you feel that puff of air. You know that that puff of sort of dank, cool air that comes out of the out of the tunnel. It's being pushed ahead of the train like some strange plug of of air from the eternal grave of the pharaohs. And I feel it coming out, and I feel the ground thundering. And I notice the old guy sitting there is not doing anything. He's just sitting there picking his teeth. He's paying no attention to nothing. He's reading Milk Gross, his latest deep-cutting analysis of the sporting world. And I'm waiting, and I still see nothing. I still feel a thunder underfoot. I figure the train's coming at last. And then out of the darkness, it comes finally. I see that flickering red-yellow light in the front. You know, that red one in the front and the yellow one. And I see that headlight, a kind of a gleaming yellowish, brownish headlight. And I'm getting ready, you know. I, I say, oh boy, at last, I'm getting out of here. And blam, 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 blam. Gone. Just roars past. Now, I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it. Now, I honestly saw it my, myself. There was nobody driving that train. At least that I could see. And there was nobody in the car as it was dimly lit. It just roared past. I went over and I sat down on the bench. You know, you, you, you look for human companionship at certain hours, even if it's subhuman. I sat there. And I says, these damn trains, you'd think they'd stop at this hour of night. The old guy does nothing. He spits, thereby breaking a $25 law. Is it 40 now, or is it 50? I see it's going up. You can't even spit for less than 50 bucks in this city anymore. And so he spits down there, and I looked at him. You know, I wasn't going to think on him. The guy's got this look on his face. He's an old-timer. And he says, you don't expect to fly an A-train to stop, do you? I says, the what? He says, the flying A-train. I said, what's the flying A-train? I'll bite. I've bitten on every riddle ever since I, you know, the first one. What's black and sits in a tree and weighs 500 pounds and is dangerous? I've bitten on that 500 times already myself. What's a Polish sport coat? I bite on that every time, even though I invented it. This is WOR, New York. We switch now to the WOR newsroom for a bulletin. This is Lester Smith in the WOR newsroom. The National League Western Division Championship race goes right down to the final game of the season tonight. With the San Francisco Giants in first place over the Los Angeles Dodgers by one game beating the San Diego Padres while the Dodgers are facing the Houston Astros. A giant win would make anything that happens to the Dodgers purely academic. If both San Francisco and Los Angeles lose, the Giants are also winners. A Los Angeles victory and a giant defeat will send those two clubs into a one-game playoff for the right to meet the Eastern Division champion Pittsburgh Pirates. WR710 will bring you inning-by-inning inning scores and game highlights throughout the night and the morning until the final results are in. The batteries have been posted for the two games. The Giants are sending right hand to Juan Marichal, who has a 17-11 record and who has regained winning form at just the right time for San Francisco. 
against San Diego's Dave Roberts, whose 14 and 16 record with a bad last place club is still backed by the second best earned run average in the National League. Marshall has been effective against the Padres this season. He's won three or four decisions. Roberts has never beat San Francisco. He's lost to them three times this year. In the Los Angeles-Houston game, the Astros will start Jack Billingham, 10 and 15. He's lost three or four decisions to the Dodgers. L.A. will go with Don Sutton, 16 and 12 on the year, 2 and 1 against Houston this season. As soon as the scores start coming in, we will bring them to you along with the game highlights. And now back to Gene Shepard. So I'm sitting there. I says, all right, I'll bite. What is the flying A-train? He says, well, I work for the subway system. I said, you do? He says, I'm a track man. I said, yeah. He said, I've been working on it for 40 years. He says, the, the flying A-train goes past this station maybe once, twice, maybe three times a year. So I've seen itself, myself, maybe a dozen times in the last 10 years. If you just saw it, I said, what is it? I said, you're putting me on. I said, the flying H train, that's some kind of a, a repair train, right? They go up and they repair something at 86th Street. He said, no, it isn't. He said, nobody knows where that train goes. I said, nobody knows where that train goes? He says, they say that back in the 1890s, there was a motorman who was driving a train who was in love with this girl in the Bronx. And one night he was killed in a head-on ex- crash up around 110th Street. And he said, ever since that time, he's been piloting a ghost train back and forth, looking, looking, always looking. I says, he's been piloting a ghost train back and forth? He says, yep. He says, anybody works for the subway long enough knows about it. I says, you, you're, you're kidding me. And I said, come on, you're kidding. He says, no, I'm not. He said, there is a thing called a flying A-train. That ghost train on the A-line. I just sat there in the darkness, that, those yellow light bulbs. Another 20 minutes go by, and a real train finally showed up couple of tired cleaning ladies sitting in the back carrying their buckets home. I got on and we rolled out. The old man never got on that train. I don't know what train he got on. And that's the story of the flying A train. The ghost. The ghost A-line train. And you, I'm there, I'm just throwing it out for what it's worth. And you know, I began to think that maybe since now that we've grown a whole urban man, a whole urban man, a whole way of life, hundreds of generations, that that's going to be part, that will be the beginning and is the beginning of the mythology of the city. Ghost subway trains. Ghost ambulances forever howling in the night. Going east forever on 57th Street and never coming back.
telephones ringing at 3 o'clock in the morning in empty phone booths on Madison Avenue. Mysterious calls to non-existent people. Frank, you know, have you ever heard the, the story of the phantom radio station? You know there is such a story? That maybe four or five, ten years ago, people all of a sudden began to hear phantom, a phantom radio station with unknown performers and strange interviews and peculiar music that had no context with any known thing that anyone had known before. It was being heard in the Midwest, and it would shift around on the dial. And they put DF on it, and they never could locate it. And then one day, it disappeared. And those who heard it can't convince those who didn't hear it that they'd heard it. Like late at night when you're a ham, you begin to hear things in your earphones. You really do. Things coming from God knows where in space. I used to have a rotary beam antenna where you could pretty closely tell where you were listening. In other words, it was very directional. And I remember many times hearing conversations drifting out of the night and swinging the beam around. And they were coming from directions they should never have come from. Went directly out to sea. And you hear a guy claiming he was in Cleveland talking to you. <laughs> Bring it up there, Nick. Thank you. You know, all right, hold it. Now, reset that there. I'm going to... Now, seriously, I wonder if any of you have ever seen the, the uh, Phantom A-Train. Now, I'm not inventing this. Uh, you know, a few years ago, I talked about the giant alligators that exist in the sewers in New York City. And uh, it's funny, the controversy that started. People arguing back and forth. But you notice the city never made any official announcement? <laughs> Indeed. Right now, at this very minute, probably not more than 40 feet from where you are in an underground river flowing under your house in mid-Manhattan. There's a 26-foot alligator just laying down there. Just waiting. Just waiting and waiting. Well, you know, this, uh, there's, there's many things that... Uh, I'm, not, I'm not an occult type. I'm just merely discussing physical phenomena and not the metaphysical. It's very different. In fact, I'm reading the paper the other day and it's a strange moment, you know. Because two nights before, I had seen the Count of Monte Cristo on TV. You see that? Yeah, you've seen it. Well, I figure, you know, the Count of Monte Cristo, I've been, you know, I've been hung on it ever since I was a kid, you know, the Count of Monte Cristo. I always confused him with the guy with the man in the iron mask. You remember that one? Hey, answer me. You remember the man in the iron mask? I'll, I'll give you a piece of trivia. What was his name? Who? That's right. By George, you remember. <laughs> you were bitten by the same thing that I was bitten by. You know, there's just two kinds of people, Nick. I mean, there's us and then there's the others. I mean it. I mean, if I say the man in the iron mask, most everybody else is, well, what do you mean? You're talking about Yogi Berra? And, uh, you know, I'm talking about the man in the iron mask. 
Well, you know, I, I uh, one time we had a, we in, in our school, I was going to the Morton School, and there was this lady who was our teacher, Miss Fife, and uh, she was very romantic, and we were in eighth grade. And so we were reading all this stuff, you know, Count of Monte Cristo, The Man on the Iron Mask, Evangeline, oh, man. We read Evangeline, we read uh, Captain Blood. But, uh, incidentally, how many of you know who Captain Blood, what was his name? They called him Captain Blood, what was his name? Come on, was not hemoglobin. It was his name, Captain Blood. And who wrote Captain Blood? That's right, I read every line of, oh, what a great name. Raphael Sabatini. What a great name. I mean, only a guy by that name should have written that, those books, you know. And so we're, I'm deep in this, this uh, mystique, you see, in these scudding, these scudding uh, men of war plunging through the, uh, through the wine-dark sea into the night. And, uh, you know, the broadsides and the whole bit going on. And one, one Saturday... We were taken, our entire class, by Miss Fife. It was, you know, it was Saturday. And so Miss Fife said, Saturday, all of you who want to go, she got a special thing from the Orpheum Theater. And uh, that Saturday afternoon, any kid who wanted to come, and uh, you only had to pay 15 cents or something, it was a special thing for the schools, could come and see the Count of Monte Cristo. <laughs> and the whole class went there. And we're all sitting there in the darkness, and there's the Count of Michael. It was the same show that you see, on, you know, on TV now. And I went out of my bird. You know, it's just fantastic. I'm reading in the Times, it says the Italian government plans to sell the storied island of Monte Cristo. You know, that's a real place. You can buy it. And they're going to sell it to a watchdog agency, whatever the hell that is, to keep adventurers from hunting its treasures of rare wildlife and plants. She, since the Count of Monte Cristo and the tale by Alexandre Dumas, made off with the gold and jewels and used them to get revenge against those who had falsely accused him. Do you remember that story? Wild story. Uh, there has been not much on it. In fact, there's been nothing on this bleak three-and-a-half-square-mile island south of Elba except wild goats and poisonous vipers. And that's where the Count of Monte Cristo hung around. Monks tried several times to settle there, but they were never able to farm the rocky soil, and they could never fight off the poisonous serpents that infest the island. Gee, that was in the, in the story. You remember that? I didn't believe it until I read this. You know, this was not fiction. There was nothing but these terrible... Vipers. Now, that's, that even sounds worse than snakes. I mean, just vipers. I mean, what is a three-letter word? Yeah, it always pops up in the New York Times crossword puzzle. And by the way, I would like to take issue with the New York Times right now at this minute. They were unbelievably uh, punny in their crossword puzzle. Did you hear what their crossword puzzle had in it? Listen to this one now. Are you curious? Curious? It says... A dis it says, uh, Portnoy's Complaint. It's a long thing. And so I work it all out. What does it turn out to be? The Gripes of Roth. <laughs> I got so mad. Will Wing, what are you doing to the mind of America, Will Wing? This is edited by Will Wing. Oh, times, times. You are rotting the mind of America. I have seen the best minds of my generation. 
I have seen the best minds of my generation go stark raving mad because of the New York Times crossword puzzle. Oh, Times, oh, thou, all the news that fit the print. Excuse me, Allen Ginsberg, you don't mind, do I? Do you, huh? <laughs> I have seen the best. But nevertheless, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm reading about this, this place, you see. Uh, you know, the Count of Monte Cristo's island says there's no bathing beach. Says it had been for a few years in the days of the Italian kings. The island was a royal hunting resort for blue bloods who went there to hunt and to, by the way, specifically hunt the evil vipers. How about that? Boy, can you imagine some of our blue bloods galloping over the green, green sward of, uh, of uh, Central Park hunting vipers? Imagine Truman Capote and Jimmy Breslin galloping on chargers. That <laughs> but nevertheless, the Count of Monte Cristo lived on this island. There's no bathing beach. There's no port. And you have to anchor offshore and somehow swim through the vipers to get there. And it says there are even rumors uh, that, there were, that there were great treasures hidden there. You know, all the, a lot of these mysterious islands have that same rumor, see? And so uh, today everybody is... Uh, and there's a lot of interest in this to buy the island of the Count of Monte Cristo and just keep it that way. Infested with vipers, the winds blow. It's a rocky, barren, very uh, forbidding island. Oh, what a pad, man. What a place for me to go and write a book. Sitting there among the vipers. Yeah, you know, and, and I'm, I'm sitting in the barber chair, you know, reading this thing, but, oh, man, here I am on 6th Avenue, and out there is that island. Well, you know, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you something that, uh, now, I, I think a lot of you people, I mean, I, I, I don't know why this is so, but I, I, I think many people live in a state of constant exalted innocence. They do. And they've been lucky. They've been shielded from things. Now, this is not anything uh, to be uh, to be looked for or to be fought. It's the thing that happens. And there it is. It's like uh, the earth is round. It's a fact. Well, many people... It's like the other night I told the story about the, the woman. Uh, I went to visit them, and they had this uh, plastic bed bug. And by the way, I just got a wild letter from a sculptor who sent me a picture of a bug she had made. She says, I never saw a bed bug. She says, I just thought this was some kind of a beetle, so I made it. Well, baby, that wasn't a bed bug you made because bed bugs are not in the beetle family, for those of you who are curious about bed bugs. They're in another family entirely. I suggest you look it up. In fact, bed bugs, among bugs, they have a very high intelligence. Sneaky. Yes, they do. I mean, they're not very good at racing or anything, but uh, outside of that, they uh, they get along, I'll tell you. But uh, nevertheless... I'm, I'm uh, you know, I'm deep in, in the... Oh, yeah, no, we're, we're, there's a, we're part... And by the way, this island has been uninhabited for centuries. And now, I don't know why I thought of this. Well, actually, you can see why when I tell you the story. I'm reading this thing, and it suddenly hit me. Oh, I've never told this story in the air. Really haven't. How many of you, how many of you have ever gone on a vacation when, you know, usually when you were a kid or sometime uh, when, you were, when things were out of your control... When I, which is most of the time, <laughs> come to think of it, how many times have you ever gone on a vacation that turned out to be totally and completely, not really a fiasco, but strangely and eerily 
unsuccessful. Now, looking forward to it. Well, and this island of the Count of Monte Cristo reminded me of that story. One year, like most families, you know, it's funny how, how families will, will have a, a whole set of things they do year after year. And they never question them. They'll go to the same place for vacation every year. They always go to, you know, some some place that they years ago found, and they go there. That's it. They don't go anyplace else. And uh, for years, we would go to the same place every year in, in this, uh, in Michigan. We would go to uh, a place called Clear Lake. We went to Clear Lake every year. Well, you know, it was a regular routine. Well, it wasn't very clear, this lake. But it was, a, you know, a nice little lake, nothing there. Have some turtles living in it, and a couple of sunfish, and 27 million Johnson outboard motors, and that was about it. You know, it was a, it was a, it was a controllable lake. So one, one summer, the old man comes home. He's all excited. He says, listen, he says, we're not going to Clear Lake this year. My mother says, where, where are we going? He said, look, he says, one of the guys who works in the accounting department has a cousin who wants to sell a cottage on a fantastic lake in Michigan, and he needs the dough. He needs the dough. Here's our chance to buy a great cottage. And he said he'll let us go up there for a week, and he won't charge us hardly anything. So we'll take our vacation on this lake. And he says, it's tremendous, fantastic fishing up there. And he says, it's great. He says, it's up in Michigan. Well, it was that innocent announcement which led to one of the eeriest experiences that I, I, I personally have ever had in the outdoors. Eerie. We drove up all weekend we drive in the Oldsmobile. And my kid brother is sick half the way up there, you know, heaving out of the back of the car, and we stop and fix the tires. But that we're going to a new place, so there's a little sense of excitement about it. And really, really, the old man had his fishing tackle in the car. He had stuff piled on the top of it and cots and the whole jazz and pots and pans. My mother had 17,000 cases of Campbell's pork and beans and the whole bit. Say, well, we're driving to this lake. Now, I, I will tell you the real name of the lake uh, because there won't be any fear in hurting the innocent. Not when you hear about this lake. It was called Donald Lake. So we drive up to Donald Lake and we we go over the hill, and the old man had the map all marked out. See, so you go on Route 6SJ7, you go 17 miles past the feed store, you turn left at the gravel road, then you turn right again at the shell station, then you go past the red barn, and then you see a sign that says worms turn left there, and you go in, and there it is. So we went over the hill, and there, laying before us, is this beautiful, fantastic lake. Donald Lake. Now, in Michigan, when the sun goes down, it goes down real slow and golden. And the twilights there are long, and they linger on, sort of soft and gray, blue, little touch of pink and green. And that was this beautiful lake. And the old man just stopped the oars, and we sat there for a minute, and he said, look at that. Donald Lake. You know what I'm going to do? He says, I'm going to call Zudok to tell that guy that we're going to stay the whole two weeks. Because we were going to spend the first week there and then go on to Clear Lake, see? Which we knew. He said, look at that lake. It's beautiful. We drove on down through this gravel road. 
couple of old shacks there, and it was a farmhouse there. The old man drove up and says, where's the Selkie cottage? The guy said, well, Selkie cottage? He said, gee, ain't been nobody there for a couple of years. He says, down there, you turn left, he said, you'll find that old dock. It's right on the other side of the old dock down there in the trees. And we drove up to this cottage, which was owned by this guy, Selkie. And it was for sale for practically nothing. That was a beautiful little cottage. And so we rush out. The old man's got the key. We open it up. And, you know, there's a few spider webs. And we're loading the stuff in. We can hardly go down. And out in front of the cabin is this lovely lake just laying there. No motorboats. No people rushing up and down with water skis. No, no cuckoos. And it was just like the kind of lakes you read about in Field and Stream. You know, the great bass lake. And off to the left, you could see these lily pads hanging. And right in the middle of the island, and this is important, in the middle of the lake was an island. Dark green. It's an island, I would say, probably covered three acres. It was just like a big jewel laying right in the middle of this golden lake. Well, so we're eating supper, you know, the old man. We cook up a can of pork and beans, and we get the rye bread, and we're eating the hot dogs. And we go to bed, and we get up the next morning all excited. Everything was great up to that moment. And he had an old rowboat, this guy, Selkie, which he had pulled up on the shore. So we go down and get in the rowboat, and we're going to go out fishing. We've got a fishing license. And we go out. We were the only guys fishing in the lake. Which we should have questioned right there. So we're out there fishing, and everything's looking great. The old man catches a sunfish and a couple of perch. Gee, it's wonderful. The sun is now hanging overhead. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting in the back of the boat all excited. I love fishing with my old man. I see something in the water. Just something moving, going, just kind of rippling in the water. And I said to the, my father, I said, hey, what's that, Dad? Look at that fish over there. The old man is sitting up the front there where the anchor chain is. And he's got his casting rod. And he looks down. And I see his face. He's got a strange white color. And he says, holy smokes. He says, come on, let's get out of here. So he pulls up the anchor. And we rose to another place. We just rose to the other side of the lake. And he says, let's get over here. He says, uh, and I didn't know what it was at first. See. And it happened again. This time I saw what it was. In the water were these huge five and six foot snakes. Giant water copperheads and moccasins. Well, I want to tell you, we rode back to the shore. We must have seen about five of them. We rode back to the shore and we rush up on the porch and just about that time one of the guys from the farmhouse which was about half a mile up the road shows up in his pickup truck and he says hey he said i thought you guys i heard there was somebody down here in the selkie cottage the old man is shaking so he, and he said the snakes he said yeah he said you mean you didn't know about that the old man said no about what he said, this lake is just complete. He said, nobody ever comes here. He said, we don't know where they come from. He said, about 12 or 5 years ago, this lake suddenly became totally infested with water, water moccasins and uh, cottonheads. And he said, you see the island out there? And I said, yeah. 
He said, I wouldn't suggest you get any more, any closer than maybe 50 yards of that eye. He said, there's probably the biggest rattlesnakes in the entire state of Michigan on that island. He says, and they go from one shore to the next. He said, I don't know why, what happened? He said, every poisonous snake in the state come down to Donald Lake. He said, most of these cottages just close up so nobody comes here anymore. And the old man says, but, but we were fishing. And the farmer says, no kidding. You got more nerve than I got. We stood on the front porch looking down at this beautiful water there. That afternoon, we got back in the Oldsmobile, packed our Campbell pork and beans back in the trunk. We drove to Clear Lake. It was kind of comforting to hear those Johnson outboard motors, to see all those water ski cuckoos running around. And late at night, years after that, the old man sometime would come home and he'd say, because he had a bad sense of humor anyway, the old man would come home sometimes and he'd say, you know, hey, you know, how about let's take in a weekend going up to Donald Lake? I wanted to flip. <laughs> One day he was scared of with snakes. And so once you've, once you've seen this uh, strange kind of, uh, of inundation of the, of the uh, you know, the, the landscape, the beautiful landscape with, with poisonous vipers, you can never really uh, approach it with the same savoir-faire. Like the time I... Well, I shouldn't tell you the story since we've only got about a minute and a half to go. But the time I'm in the Army, we're in the middle of this swamp, dark, dark, tropical swamp. And in this tent, we had a six-man tent. And one night, I came in after working until midnight. I was on the midnight shift on our radar set. And the rest of the guys were sleeping in the tent. And I come walking into the tent. You know how you do I just walk in hot. I'm wearing nothing but shorts and sweating. And I slam the tent door and open, slam it. You know, it's a hunk of canvas. And I push it open and I go clumping in. We had a wooden floor, I say. I go clumping in. I had a flashlight I carried. It was hooked on my belt, a webbing belt. So I take the flashlight off, and I clip it on, I turn it on, and I see something move under my bunk. I see something, I repeat, move under my bunk. And so like a fool, I get down on my hands and knees, you know, and I look right under the bunk, and I shine this light under the bunk, and I want to tell you, I mean, I know you're going to go to sleep tonight, I know all that. But I saw these two little beady eyes looking at me, the little tiny beady eyes. See, and I said, well, what's that in there? The little mouse or something. So I reached my hand in there, and I came damn near getting myself, you know. It's amazing how quick you can, you can put your head right in the meat grinder. And I looked real careful with the light before, I, and then I saw what it was. It was the biggest, meanest most on-the-muscle scorpion I've ever seen in my life. Have you ever seen a working scorpion? They're bad-looking. I mean, a bad-looking. His tail was bent way up like that. And then I flashed the light around, and I saw there must have been 30 or 40 of them just crawling along the side of the tent, along the wall. And there, over on one side of the tent, Gasser was asleep, and above him, Zinsmeister was snoozing away. And I go over, and I wake Gasser up, and says, Gasser... One of all five of you guys just go outside real quick like, and I'll tell you what's the trouble when you get out. They did. From that time on, we slept in zippered-up sleeping bags with shotguns. 